Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we sing hallelujah because of the work of Christ who has saved us from our sins and given us eternal life. We thank you, Father, that we can come and worship you and sing praises unto your name. We know, Father, that our praise is not adequately to adequate to express from our hearts the true love that we should have for you. And we ask that you forgive us, Father, for the times that we fail in giving you adequate praise. Pray that you would fill our hearts with much joy this day as we think upon the cross and what Christ has accomplished for us. And as we think upon that eternal blessing that he has promised us in glory, we thank you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sins, but you drew us into yourself. You drew us into your Son, and we thank you, Father, for this great salvation that we have in Christ. Pray that you would give us wisdom and knowledge as we study your word this day, and we ask, Father, that your Spirit would come in power and do that work that only he can of bringing sinners to Christ and sanctifying your saints. We thank you, Father, for your, our sister churches, and we pray that you would bless them throughout the world as they meet this day to worship you, that many would come into your kingdom. And, Father, we pray that your name would be on every tongue. We pray that your salvation would flood the nations. We thank you, Father, for such a great salvation that we can proclaim, and we pray that you would use us to be your ambassadors. We pray, Father, even for the crusade this evening as young people to come together. We know, Father, that so many of our young people need Christ, and we pray that you would be pleased to work in the lives of those young people, open their eyes to the truth, unstop their ears so that they might hear the gospel and that they might respond and confess their sinfulness and repent of that and look to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and needs, and we pray that you would meet them so that they might return to us quickly. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Luke chapter 16, and we'll begin reading with 22, verse 22. We've been looking at this passage for three weeks, and I want to look at the verses 22 through 26. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the finger, tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great guff fixed, so that those who want it to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This particular story that Jesus gives us primarily deals with the place called hell, a place of great torment. But it also refers to heaven, as we have just read. And I much rather preach on heaven than hell. It's a much greater joy to be able to preach on heaven than hell. But both of these doctrines must be preached from the pulpit today. Jesus says very little about heaven. His main emphasis, as I've already mentioned, is primarily dealing with the rich man that is in torment there in hell. But he does mention Lazarus, and Lazarus' experience there in comfort in Abraham's bosom. Now, it's hard for us, being earthly creatures, to fully grasp these two extremes, that of heaven and that of an eternal hell. But yet we must seek to grasp them. Our minds must seek to understand these truths so that we might be 
able to use them in witnessing to others and also to comfort our own life. We see that Paul in First or in Colossians three one through two says, "If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth." Now, from this exhortation that Paul gives us, we see that we should set our mind on heaven, on heavenly things. Because for Christian, heaven is our future home. And true Christians have a longing for heaven. Now, the main reason we have a longing for heaven is because that's where Christ is, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And of course, as a Christian gets older and older, he has a greater longing to leave this world and to be with Christ. As the hymn says, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So as we mature and grow older as Christians, that should be happening in our life. The things of this earth should grow dimmer and dimmer, and the glory and grace of Christ should be brighter and brighter. It's good for us to get our minds off of this world and put our minds on heavenly things, put our minds on Christ. In his future glory. And this is one of the reasons why we have the Lord's Day. God created the Lord's Day for us to have rest, but he primarily created it for us to worship and to prepare us for glory, for the future worship that we will experience in heaven. So this is a preparation. As we gather every Sunday and the importance of gathering every Sunday so that we might prepare our hearts for glory. Listen to what Archibald Alexander, who was the first professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, said, Let all vanity and curious gazing and laziness be banished from the house of God. Let every heart be filled up on entering the sanctuary. And let the thoughts be carefully restrained from wandering on foolish and worldly objects. And resolutely recall when they have begun to go astray. Let brotherly love be cherished when joining with others in the worship of God. The hearts of all the church should be united in worship as the heart of one man. Thus, with the worship of the sanctuary below, be, let it be a preparation for the pure heavenly worship in the temple above. How we need to remind us of those truths that he states there. I mean, right now, some of your thoughts may be wondering, what does he say that? He says, when your thoughts began to wonder, refocus, in other words. Slap yourself so that you are able to focus on the things that you need to focus on. And that is what? The worship of God. The sad truth is that most Christians have been brainwashed in thinking that they should think less about heavenly things, less about being heavenly minded, so that some would say you're more of earthly good. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Well, is that true? Can you think of someone who was the most heavenly minded of all human beings? I think we all can. Christ himself. Now, was Christ of no earthly good? Matter of fact, the more heavenly minded we are, in reality, the more earthly good we are. 
So therefore, we must fill our minds with the things of heaven. We must put our minds upon what Christ put his mind upon. So being heavenly minded doesn't mean being isolated from this world. It doesn't mean that we ignore the contemporary issues of this world. Nor does it mean that we decline from being involved in this world. I mean, Christ was involved in this world more than anyone in seeking to do that which was right. So being heavenly minded is just the opposite of what Oliver Wendell Holmes says. We should be involved in what Christ has called us to do, and that is to be his witnesses, his ambassadors. We are to follow in his steps, as Peter tells us. So doing so, we please our Heavenly Father, who has given us a work to do here on this earth. Now, I want to dwell this morning on heaven. And I will do this by posing questions again, like I did last week. And then answer those questions. First, what is heaven like? We all want to know what heaven's like, right? Well, the Bible tells us some things about heaven. Let me first point out that the word heaven is used in various ways in scriptures. Now, of course, we aren't speaking about the sky. We're not speaking about the universe. But we're speaking about a place where God, the Holy Trinity, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Heaven is a place that God Himself dwells in. But yet at the same time, we know that the heavens cannot contain Him. Heaven is called in Scripture the highest heaven. The heaven of heavens. The third heaven, which Paul refers to there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Heaven is not a place where we will be floating around on a cloud with a heart. That's not heaven. That's something that is made up by Hollywood. We're not turned into angels. We don't have wings. That is not heaven. That is not what happens to a Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth than having that kind of mindset. Don't be misled by commercialism. I get so tired of seeing people place on Facebook, well, they've got their wings now. Folks, you don't get wings when you go to heaven. I can't emphasize that enough. No, when you go to heaven, you go to be with Christ. Matter of fact, You won't even have a body till later. Then you will have a new body and that body will be glorified. People need to understand what the Bible has to say about heaven and what the Bible has to say about us when we go to heaven. So where is heaven? Well, we can't be real dogmatic about it. We can't be too narrow about it because Scripture does not clearly point out where heaven is other than what it says pertaining to how great it is and that God is there and that we look up to heaven and that there is a great gulf, as this particular story tells us, between heaven and hell. And that's what the rich man was told, as we see there in Scripture. Besides, you can't go there and they can't come here is what uh, Jesus is stating pertaining to the rich man, that there is a great gulf fixed So that those there can't pass here, nor vice versa. So we see that there's a great gulf. Now, when you think of a great gulf, of course, immediately in my mind comes the great gulf of Mexico. But, of course, that can't be what Jesus was talking about because the gulf of Mexico was not named the gulf of Mexico at that particular time. But I think he probably is making reference to something like that. In other words, if you ever look across the ocean, you can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. It's endless, right? Well, that's what he's talking about. Between heaven and hell is just endless. It's so far apart, and we have to keep that in mind. Now, we're told that in heaven, Jesus sits there at the right hand of God as our mediator. It's the place of his dwelling. He ascended there after his resurrection. 
And we know that from eternity past, as we read the passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 14, that Lucifer and his angels were cast out of heaven due to his rebellion. And he led one-third of his angels, which became demons, and they were thrown out of heaven. So it appears that heaven is up. And the language used in the Bible gives us a picture of God ruling over all His creation from heaven. And that all things are in the span of God's hand. Now that's amazing when you think about that. I mean, if you think about eternity and you think about universe and you think about how great just our universe is, And the scripture says that God has all of it in the span of his hand. That tells you how great God is. And that God who is so great and so marvelous has a people whom he created for a purpose and he rules over them. Scripture speaks of our praying up to God. And the saints who die rise up to meet him in the air. And God looks down from heaven... And he sees all that he has created. And we see in the very beginning when he had created heaven and earth, he looked down from heaven and he said that it was all good. We see that heaven is a place where God inhabits. Or as I've already said, we know that it does not contain God, but yet God inhabits heaven. In 1 Kings 8, 27, after the building of the temple, Solomon said these words, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this temple that I have built. So you see what Solomon is saying. Lord, you're so great, heaven cannot contain you. And I know this little bitty temple down here on earth cannot contain you. Now, there are those who speculate about heaven. Be very careful about those who do such things. Be careful about those who have written about heavenly experiences they say that they have had and then return to earth. Pastor John Piper wrote a book back in 1989 called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And it gives his death bed or death experience. And he made a little bit of money off of it, sold seven million books. And then they eventually made a movie about it. Listen to what John MacArthur says about it. He says, the idea about heaven that gets the most press are mostly figments of a human imagination that bear little resemblance to the glorious realm of Christ's kingdom as it is described in God's Word. Far too much of the present interest in heaven, angels, and the afterlife stem from cardinal curiosity. It is not a trend, though it, it is not a trend those of us who accept the authority of Scripture should be encouraged or celebrate. And I think we need to heed the advice of John MacArthur on that. I'm not going into detail of the things that Don Piper speaks about in his book, but I do want to say that Scripture instructs us about heaven, not his book. And we are not permitted to add to this subject of heaven other than what God tells us in Scripture. Our experience-based conclusions to what God has specifically revealed is what we must hold fast to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Did you hear that? We're not to think beyond what is written in Scripture. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf 
one against the other. Now, what is he talking about being puffed up? In other words, he's talking about someone saying, I experienced this and being puffed up because they think that they have experienced something that others have not been able to experience. So we are forbidden to, be, to go beyond what Scripture says concerning spiritual matters. Lazarus of Bethany died and was in the tomb for four days. His body was decaying. We also see that he was given an entire chapter there in the gospel. An entire chapter was devoted to what happened to him. Guess what? It does not say one single word about what happened during those four days that he was in the tomb. Not one single word about his death experience. The same thing is true of every single person in Scripture that died and was brought back to life. Did you know that there are ten experiences that are recorded in Scripture of people dying and being brought back to life? And no record whatsoever is spoken of any of them as they died and were brought back to life. So therefore, he reluctantly, Paul does, mentions his own experience. When false teachers challenged his authority, his heavenly vision that he had, and if you remember in what Paul says, he says, I don't know whether it was in the body or whether it's in the spirit. He said, I don't know. And he spoke in the third person. And he did not even bring it up to what? 14 years after it happened. Now, can you imagine that? Having that kind of an experience and being silent about it for 14 years, being called up to the third heaven. The only reason why he brought it up then is because his authority was a challenge as far as being an apostle. To be an apostle, one of the things you had to be was being taught by Christ Himself, being with Christ. So therefore, Paul shared this particular experience that he had there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, I know a man. He doesn't even call himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Now, we see also that he simply talks about what happened as far as him being taught by Christ. So what is heaven like? Well, Scripture states that heaven is holy. Heaven is glorious. More glorious than we could ever imagine. More glorious than we could ever describe. For it is where God's glory is revealed. And remember what God said to Moses. I shared this a couple of weeks ago. He told Moses, he said, you can't see my glory. Why? You will die if you see my glory. Well, in heaven we see His glory. And we don't die. Why? Because we're already dead. See, now we're alive. We will really be alive when we're in heaven and we're able to see God's glory there. And it's where God's glory is revealed to us. A place also of unending joy. The scripture says that those who die in the Lord enter into the joy of the Lord. Now again, our joy here on earth lasts for just a few moments. Maybe even a day. But you know what? That same joy that we may have had yesterday, the next day, over something that happens to us in this life, it's gone, isn't it? I mean, people that when uh, you see the Super Bowl, well, after it happens one day, they're, they're not excited really that much. They're looking forward to doing it again, right? They want to try to experience that joy again. But the joy that we have in heaven, the joy that we have in the Lord is a sustaining joy, a joy that never ends. In the parable of the talents, in Matthew twenty five twenty one, it says, his Lord said to him, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy 
of your Lord. Psalm 16, 11. You will show me the path of life in your presence in fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. We cannot comprehend that. Pleasures forever. Joy forever. Think of the greatest experience you ever had in your life and it cannot compare to what heaven is like. And that greatest experience you ever had in your life, it ceased at some time. This never ceases. It continues forever and ever. Heaven is full of abundant joy. Overflowing joy. Unending joy. I can't comprehend it, but boy, I sure do look forward to it. And I hope you do too. But the only way that we ever get to experience that is, of course, it begins here. We get a foretaste of it in our salvation and in our worship to God. Revelations 21 and 22 gives us an extensive visual image of what heaven is like. We're not going to take time to read Revelations 21 and 22, but if you want to know what heaven is like, read it this afternoon. It's so wonderful, and the symbols that it gives to us only try to help us understand it. Remember I talked about the symbols of hell. And those symbols of hell don't really do justice to what hell is going to be like. Well, the same way with the symbols of heaven. They seek to help us understand heaven, but yet again, they don't do justice what heaven is really like. God gives us terms that we can understand and try to comprehend what He's going to do in glory. But yet again, our minds are so small and God is speaking to us, as Calvin says, He's speaking to us in baby talk to what things that we can understand. And we took those things that we understand and we seek to apply them and grasp these things that God has given us. We see in Scripture, it talks about the streets of gold. Now, there's not literal streets of gold. But what he's saying there, that's how precious heaven is. Can you imagine streets of gold? He also tells us great treasures of jewels are adored in the New Jerusalem. And there's no sun and there's no moon, there's no stars. Why? Because the radiance of Christ lights up heaven. And we see that we are told that there's no more death, no more pain, and that God will wipe away the tears of His people. Now we kind of have an understanding of that. I mean, you remember as a child when, when you would be out, and I think just about all of us at some time or another fell and scraped our knee. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand if that didn't happen, but I think every single child has fallen and scraped their knee. And what does that child immediately do? Goes looking for who? Not daddy, mama, right? Goes looking for mama and runs and goes to mama crying and mama takes what? Takes that child and brings that child up into the arm and begins to love on it and say, where's the bobo? And begins to kiss and take, takes her apron and wipes away the tears, right? And boy, isn't that comforting as a child to know that mama cares, that mama loves you, that mama is able to wipe away the tears. And we see that Scripture gives us that kind of idea. Why? Because, see, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Why? Because God has put an end to all of those things. See, heaven is described as a place of utter delight, filled with radiant majesty and glory. It is where God's people have become completely sanctified and vindicated. That in itself makes heaven heaven in one sense. Where God's people are completely sanctified. In other words, there's no more disputes, no more argument, no more division. All there is love for one another. As the scripture says, no more death, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more hatred, no more evil. Knowing these things alone should cause each one of us to be charismatic. Jump a few pews, right? 
I mean, it gets you excited when you think of heaven. Now, of course, I know some of you like the little boy whose Sunday school teacher was talking about heaven. And, and she said, don't all of you children want to raise, uh, go to heaven? Raise your hand. And they all raised your hand but one little boy. And the teacher was wondering, you know, I thought I did a good job explaining how glorious heaven is. And everybody would want to go to heaven. And she said, little boy, now, now, you didn't raise your hand. Why? Don't you want to go to heaven? Oh, yes, ma'am. I want to go to heaven. But I thought you were talking about let's go right now. See, that's kind of how we are. We hear these glorious things about heaven and, and we say, yeah, I, I look forward, but I'm not ready to go right now, see. Well, see, if we really understood it, we would be ready to go right now. But yet, I think that's one reason God withholds some of the glorious things about heaven because we don't want to get too excited and just go right on. Heaven is a place of everlasting joy, but it's also a place of everlasting holiness. Listen to what Revelation 7, 9 says. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count, all nations, all tribes, people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand. See, these robes were white because they had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They had the righteousness of Christ. They were dressed in His robe and they were without spot or blemish. They were pure. They were spotless. And they will never be stained by sin again because sin will be eliminated. The souls of men are made perfect by Jesus Christ. So in heaven we are presented to God as He intended us to be. See, that's what He intended for Adam and Eve there in the garden to be. Holy and perfect for always. And we will be like Him in His glory. John speaks about that in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Can you believe that? Can you believe that we shall be like Him? Now what does that mean? That means we'll be perfectly holy. Perfectly pure, without any sin. We will be like Christ. We shall be like Him. And that we will no longer sin. We will have no desire to sin. We will have a perfect desire to please our Heavenly Father in every way. And the thing about it, we will be able to do that in heaven. Now let that sink into your mind. And how wonderful that is. Listen to what David, King David said in Psalms 17, 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. And I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. See, we'll be completely satisfied. I mean, this is a great satisfaction that we will have in glory. Heaven is a place where we have full satisfaction in serving our Heavenly Father. I mean, here on earth, our service is often inadequate. We're, we're often displeased. We know that our service here on earth is tainted by sin. And we see, as we read a moment ago in Revelation chapter 7, we see that many of God's saints are serving Him before the throne day and night, never growing weary, never distracted, never bored, but filled with joy, having the privilege of worshiping and serving the living God. As the psalmist says, For a day in your court is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell 
in the tent with the wicked. In heaven, there will be endless communion with our Heavenly Father, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And Paul knew this. And look, look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning there in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's, he's saying, I want to be with Christ. I mean, he had already experienced that. Remember the vision that he had? And he said, I don't know whether I was called up in the body or not. He had been with Christ and he longed to be back. But what does he say there? It's far better to be with Christ. But he said, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he was willing to stay here on this earth as long as God would have him stay here on this earth for their benefit. And that should be the same thoughts that we have. We should be longing for heaven, but Lord, if you want us to stay here as long as that might be, then we will stay here, but I'd much rather be with you. Now we also see earlier he had spoken about his experience there with Christ and his desire there to be with him again in that unending communion. David also understood this when he says in Psalms 27 two, One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Now, he's not talking about the earthly temple there. He's talking about heaven. That he longs to be with the Lord all the days of his life. What makes heaven heaven is God is there. The Trinity is there. Beholding His glory. And Jesus told His disciples that He had gone. He would go and He would prepare a place for them there in paradise. And he would go and he would prepare them mansions. Nothing that can, this earth can compare to what God has prepared for us there. And remember what he told the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. So we see that he has gone to prepare us paradise. Now many are like Pastor Ed Donnelly, Scottish pastor. He said... In his book, Heaven and Hell, that he as a child had no desire to go to heaven. For it seemed to be a very boring place. His vision was a church service that went on and on and on for a million years. While he sat on a spotless, with a spotless white suit on on a marble seat, not allowed to move throughout all eternity. Now, you know what? That's, that's the vision that some people have of heaven, really and truly. And especially children. I mean, children, especially if you're unconverted, you sit there and say, when is he going to shut up? When is this service going to end? I mean, that, that's the thought of a lot of children. And they had the same thought. And sad thing about it, some adults have the same thought that Pastor Ed Donnelly has. I mean, truthfully, that is not a very appealing heaven. I mean, if that's what heaven is like, I don't want to go there. And neither would you. A lady asked a friend one day who um, had another friend that had passed away about her friend. And she answered, well, I suppose she is enjoying eternal blitz. But... I don't want to talk about that. It's such an unpleasant subject. That's what some people think. 
I mean, let us think about the real heaven, the heaven that is spoken of in Scripture, and seek to prepare ourselves for that, remembering that Christ has gone before us preparing a place for us. Now, the second question I have, who is, I mean, who will be in heaven? Now, this question is much shorter and answered much uh, shorter than the first question. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. About this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Did you hear that? An innumerable. In other words, they can't be counted, there's so many. To the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkled that speaks better than that of Abel. See, there will be heavenly beings. And we also see that God will be there who is our judge and Christ our mediator and the spirit of just men. Now we need to realize that heaven doesn't exist primarily for your sake and my sake. Its main purpose isn't to make you and me happy or to offer us eternity of well-being even though those are the benefits of heaven. Don't misunderstand me. Heaven exists for God's glory. Do you understand that? God created heaven for Himself. He exists in heaven for Himself in His glory. And this is essential for you and me to grasp. I mean, we must not allow self-centeredness to overrule our mind and poison our mind to the true reality of heaven. I mean, most are interested in heaven. Why? So what they can get out of it, right? They're not interested in heaven because of God's glory, which He will receive from those who worship Him. When we talk about heaven, we state things like, well, I can't wait to see such and such. What I hope to see when I get to heaven. Or the joy that I hope to have. I mean, we can be guilty of not even mentioning God when we speak of heaven. And of course, the reason for that is because we're sinful creatures. That's what causes us to be self-centered. Saying, what's in it for me? Scripture teaches us that heaven exists for God's glory. In fact, in the Bible, God and heaven are often interchangeable. In the parable of the prodigal son, remember what the prodigal son said when he returned home? He says, Father, I have sinned against what? Heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. See, he realized that he had sinned against God, but he said, I've sinned against heaven. Now also we see that it speaks of the kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as what? The kingdom of heaven. So God and heaven should never be separated in our minds, for heaven is for God and His glory. Now here's a test to where we can test ourselves to examine our own spirituality. Are you more eager to hear about what you will enjoy in heaven and its pleasures and delight, or more about God and His glory and ultimate in your mind. See, if you're not interested in God and His glory, then there's a great spiritual problem. If you're not interested in who God is and how glorious God is, you need to fall down before God and confess your ignorance and ask for forgiveness. See, if you have a hard time thinking about God and His glory and that heaven will be filled with His glory and you do not long to be in His presence, then something is wrong with you spiritually. If the things of this world bring more joy and happiness than the thought of being with God in heaven, then you have a real spiritual problem. 
If your mind is on the things of this world this morning as we are in this place worshiping, you have a problem, a spiritual problem. If your mind continues to wonder about other things in this world than worshiping God today, you have a spiritual problem. You are sinning against the Holy God. He has called you on the Lord's day to focus on Him and to worship Him. And I emphasize again, the Lord's day, not an hour, day. See, some of you may be thinking, as soon as I get out of here, I can't wait to please the flesh. I'm going to go do this or I'm going to do that. That's not what you're to do. It's His day. You're to be focused on Him all day long. Now, I'm not saying you can't get any rest because He gave it for rest. I'm focused on as soon as I leave here, I go home and I take my nap. I've been up since 4 o'clock. That's the reason I take a nap every Sunday afternoon because every Sunday morning I get up between 4 and 4.30. And I'm tired by the time I finish preaching. I must be honest with you. So the Lord allows me to take a nap. But then when I get up from my nap, I'm again to be focused on the Lord and the Lord's day and the end of the day. We have evening worship service. He gives us the privilege to gather again here on Sunday evening with His people to worship Him. Why? To prepare for heaven. To be spiritually minded. Now some of you think a little dab will do me. I get a little dab, then I'm okay. I don't have to come back on Sunday night to get more. Well, guess what? You're only getting a half cup full because you're missing out. On the Lord, what the Lord has for you on Sunday evening. He would have His people gather together. He says, forsake not the assembling together of His people. We must gather to worship Him, to prepare our hearts to worship Him forever and ever in eternity. And it brings joy to our hearts when we worship God in this manner. That is what God would have us to do. Delight in Him. And being with Jesus should be the Christian's greatest aim. And we begin to meet with Jesus here when we gather together to worship Him. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? I'm there. When we gather on Sunday morning, He's there. When we gather on Sunday night, He's there. He meets with us. When we gather for prayer meeting on Wednesday night, He's there. He's promised to be with us. So therefore, He prays for us. And He desires for us to have communion with Him. Remember what He prayed in that great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? Father, I desire that that they whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which You have given Me, for You loved Me before the foundation of the world." Do you see that? Do you see that Jesus has said that He desires for us to be with Him? Do you desire to be with Him? He desires to be with you. Now where do you meet Him? You meet with Him. You can do it privately. But He also says corporately. Isn't it amazing that God, the Son of God, Desires to be with you and me. Do you realize that the New Testament doesn't speak of believers going to heaven? Instead, it states that they're going to be with Christ. The emphasis is on being with Christ, not merely being in heaven. We also see that we will be in the presence of just men made perfect, as it says there in Revelation chapter 7. The saints will be in heaven. God's people, every single believer throughout history, Adam all the way down to the last person that is saved, will be in heaven rejoicing in the work of the Lamb, whether they are great people or whether they are people never known, small people. And we'll meet some of those people that no one ever knew who were some of the greatest saints. Do you realize that? There's some people that were some of the greatest saints that were not notorious, not known. Books were not written about them, but they were faithful. They were faithful prayers. They were faithful Christians. And we will meet them and they will be known. The great saints of history. 
We need to know Him. We need to begin to know Him here on earth. Because you don't want to be embarrassed in heaven, do you? You know? I mean, that's the reason why we need to read books. We've got a book full, a room full of books back there about the great saints. Read about the great saints so that you know who they are, what they've done, so that you'll be prepared to ask questions of them when you get to glory. We see how wonderful this place is because of who is there. Foremost, as I've already mentioned, Christ, the Trinity, but also great men of God all around the throne of the Lamb. And then thirdly, why does this subject matter? Does it matter that we don't think of heaven as we ought to? Yes, it matters. First, because many take it for granted that they're going to heaven. But they're not. Now why aren't they going to heaven? Because there's no evidence in their life that they are joined to Christ. That they're in Christ. When you're in Christ, there's evidence that you're in Christ. Do you realize that 75% people think they're going to heaven in the United States? 75%. aren't sure that they're going to get in. 10% do not believe in heaven. And only 5% believe that they're not going to heaven. Now, I don't know... That other 1% were missing somewhere, but I don't know what. Maybe they didn't want to answer the question. I don't know. But in other words, what I'm saying here is that 95% in America think they're going to heaven. Many show little interest, if any, in the things of God. They've never professed Him publicly, but take it for granted that they are going to heaven That heaven will be their home. They believe that all they have to do to get to heaven is what? Die. That's what they believe. When I die, I'm going to heaven. That's where everybody goes, right? That's that's their mindset. If you suggest otherwise, then you're branded as a fundamental bigot. If you say, you know, if you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ, if Christ hasn't changed your heart, If you haven't confessed Him as Lord and Savior, you're not going to heaven, they'll say, you are crazy. Because they don't know the Bible. It matters because many popular ideas about life to come is so ridiculous and accurate. Many books, as I've already mentioned, about heaven are filled with toxic ideas and misunderstand and misquote the Bible. False religions, cults, certain denominations have confused people when it comes to heaven. They're unorthodox. They're not biblically minded. Some minds have been poisoned by false teaching in heretical books. Just like the books I mentioned earlier. It matters... Because this is one of the most important evangelical weapons that we have as Christians. God to offer sinful human beings an eternity with Him. That is amazing grace. This is it. We get to tell people that there is a heaven, there is a hell. So that they might be interested in hearing the gospel. Ted Donnelly said, We're not using one of the most wonderful truths which God has placed in His Word. Of course, it is harmful to neglect heaven. It also matters for our own sake. For our own spiritual growth as Christians, our own effectiveness in serving God. If we neglect what the Scripture says about heaven, we leave ourselves in a weaker spiritual condition. Most on the teaching of heaven isn't evangelicalism. But for pastors and people in the church, it is for our own benefit to help us and to comfort us, to encourage us and to strengthen us, to make us more holy, to prepare us for an eternity with our Holy Savior. Also to be filled with joy and enable us to be better people here on this earth. 
We hinder ourselves spiritually if we do not meditate on what God has for us in the future. This wonderful teaching of being with Him. And what unspeakable joy it can give to us in the time of death of loved ones. When we know without a shadow of a doubt in our mind that that person has left this earth and entered into the presence of Christ. What joy. A few weeks ago, when we went to the funeral of Mary Hunter's father, going through the line, I came to Jeremy, and he gave me a big old bear hug. I don't know if he remembers saying this to me or not, but he said, he is in the presence of Christ. What comfort that gave to that family to know that her father left this earth and went into the presence of Christ. What joy that gives to us to know without a shadow of our doubt in our mind that this loved one who who now lays in the tomb, in the grave, in the coffin is with Christ. He's no longer in that body, but he's with Christ. That gives us such comfort. As believers, as Paul says in in Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, eyes has not seen, nor ears heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Do you see what He said? Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. How glorious it is. Now, now this passage is often misquoted. And, that, and people will say because of that first verse, verse 9, heaven's just too great for us to understand. But notice what Paul is saying there. He's speaking in verse 10 and says to us clearly, but God has revealed them to us, see, through His Spirit. For His Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He's not saying that we can't understand it. He's, that first part, He's talking about a lost person, an unconverted person. An unconverted person can't understand these things that we're talking about. But a believer can understand them. And that's the very thing that He says next. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit and His Word. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This is a deep thing of God. The Spirit teaches us the deep things of God. God has revealed these things by His Spirit so that we might know more about heaven. And He wants us to know more about it so that it might comfort us and that our mind might grasp it and that we might give Him more glory as a result. Finally, What does a person need to do to get into heaven? What do you and I need to do to get into heaven? How do we, who are sinners, reach such a wonderful place? If heaven is so holy and we're so unholy, how are we going to get into heaven? Because heaven is a place of holiness, glory, And no sin, no wickedness is permitted in the presence of God. And man being sinful cannot in any way merit heaven. He cannot reach it in his own effort. Our sin disqualifies us completely because heaven is a holy place and nothing that is defiled shall enter there and pollute it. Because it would be annihilated instantly if we tried to enter. Now most people have the mindset that they deserve heaven. Because they are good. Because they're not a Hitler. 
or some other wicked person. But the scripture tells us differently. One pastor said, Sooner could a worm aspire to be a brain surgeon than a sinner expect to work his way into glory. Let that sink in. In and of ourselves, there is no hope whatsoever that we would ever reach heaven. No matter what we do, it will never happen in and of ourselves. There's only one way to get into heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, did you hear that? No man comes to the Father but what? Through me. Through Christ. Unless He is redeemed by the blood and death of Christ. Christ came to this earth to purchase a people for Himself. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, He says. Was He lifted up? Yes, He was lifted up. Will He draw all men to Him? Yes, He will draw all men to Him. Who are those all men? Those all men are His elect that He predestined before the foundation of the earth. And they will come to Him. But how do they come to Him? They must come to Him through repentance and belief. Those whom He has purchased must believe upon Him. Look to Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who paid the price for their sins at Calvary, who purchased them by His death to carry them to heaven. Christ alone is able to make the unacceptable, that's you and me, acceptable. He's the only one that can make us acceptable to the Father. How does He make us acceptable? He makes us acceptable by forgiving our sins because He paid for our sins there at Calvary and giving us His righteousness that permits us into heaven. He makes our journey to heaven certain. So never think of heaven apart from Him. Did you hear that? Never think of heaven apart from Christ. Let me close with what we find in the last chapter of Pilgrim's Progress. As they're about to enter into the celestial city, they of course have to go across the Jordan River, death. And Mr. Standfast had thus set in order, and the time came to where it was his time to be taken away. He also went down to the river, Now there was a great calm at the time in the river. Therefore, Mr. Standfast, when he was about halfway in, stood a while and talked to his companions that had waited upon him. He said, this river has been a tyra for many frightening children. Yet the thought of it have also frightened me. But now me think I stand ease. My foot is fixed upon which the feet of the priest had bare the ark of the covenant stood while Israel went over the Jordan. The water indeed, a little bitter, to the stomach cold, yet the thought of what I'm going to And of the conduct that waits for me on the other side, thus lie as a glowing coal at my heart. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am going to see that head which was crowned with thorns. And that face which was spit upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith. But now, I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with Him in whose company I delight myself. I have loved to hear of my Lord. And wherever I have seen the prints of His shoe in the earth, I have coveted to set my foot too. 
His name has been to me a perfume box, sweeter than all the sweet smells. His voice to me has been most sweet, and His countenance I have more desire than they that have most desired the light of the sun. His word I did use to gather my food and for medicine against my faintings. He has held me and has kept me from sin. Yea, my steps He has strengthened in His way. Now, while He was thus speaking, this countenance changed. His countenance changed. This strong man bowed down, and after he had said, Take me, for I come unto thee, he ceased to be seen of them. But glorious it was to see how the open region was filled with horses and chariots and with trumpets and and pipers and singing and and players of string instruments to welcome the pilgrims as they went up and followed another inn at the beautiful gate of the celestial city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you that he has gone to prepare a place for us called heaven, paradise. Because that's where he is, that's where you are, that's where the Holy Spirit is. Oh, Father, may we delight in thinking of heaven. May we prepare ourselves for heaven. May we not assume that we're going to heaven simply because we have done something, but Father, may we know that we are going to heaven because of what the Spirit of God has done in our life. Do not allow us to be deceived. But Father, send Your Word and Your Spirit into our hearts so that we might know Know that we have truly repented. Know that we have truly trusted in Christ and Christ alone. May today be the day of salvation. So that we are prepared to go into eternity. And meet our Lord and Savior there in glory. And may we be faithful, Father, to tell others about this wonderful place that they can go to if they will trust in Christ and Christ alone. And it's in His name that we pray.